Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey, welcome to another episode. <laughs> okay. I'm excited for you guys. Not, not, maybe not both of us. I'm excited you're here. I'm excited that they're here too. Okay. Are you still reading Jeremiah 51? <laughs> I, I just finished Did five, you? Mi- five minutes before we started. It's a long one, huh? It is a long one. Yeah. You know, it's also helpful though, or maybe no, no, it's actually not helpful. It was helpful the first day, but the day since waking up now, like, it, I mean, it's still dark. It's still dark. It's helpful that it's getting lighter earlier because of the time change, but now it's dark in the morning and it's dark when you leave work. So it's always dark. It is. It is dark. It is very dark. Man, this one's been <laughs> this has been rough. This this time change. I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older or whatever. I mean, this one's supposed to be the better one, and it's it's been rough. Like I, I don't know why. I just feel more tired. You know, you're getting older, and I guess this is a good time to have this conversation, Pastor Pete. <laughs> you know, you're not you're not a spring chicken anymore. <laughs> it's it's true. <laughs> I don't even know what a spring chicken is, but I'm not one of them. Yeah, you're more like a fallish, yeah, winterish chicken, perhaps. Yep. Not a spring one. Yeah, I, dude, I just feel like the I hate the time changes. I'm just gonna say it. We all know that we feel the same way. Why is why are our legislators our senator? I'm writing my senator today, man. I, I let's just be done with this. Let's stop. Let's stop. This I nonsense. want to be done and yeah. just let's just have the time be the same all year long. I don't. I think the only ones that enjoy it are teenagers, because when we're like, hey, you get an extra hour of sleep. Like, no parent gets an extra hour of sleep, and then by the time your kids are grown and, and gone, like. You don't even want it anymore. You don't, you're waking up early anyway. You're sleeping for you're six hours. You're in the book hours. of Ecclesiastes. You're That's waking right. with the sound <laughs> the of the grinders birds. are no longer grinding. Nope. nope, they're not. Windows are dark. Hey, but uh, we talked about and uh, kind of ingest the length of chapter 51, but it just started to, to make me think about some things that I, about how long it takes to read sections of the Bible. So if you were to sit down and read the Bible straight, how long do you think it would take you? The whole Bible? Yep. Uh, 52 hours. Uh, a little bit more than that, but you're in the ballpark. 55. 67 hours, 18 minutes to read the whole Bible. Well, it depends. What's the speed, speed reading on that? 200 words per minute. Yeah, see, that's below average. I think average is 250. Uh, okay. Well, this says, on average, a person reads about 200 words per minute. Okay. Well, it's Though some can read up to 500 words per minute if the material is easy to digest. So it's somewhere around 60 to 67 hours to read the entire Bible. And right. that's just straight reading, though, right? That's just straight reading. Because I, I cannot read that fast into my Bible. I mean... I don't know. I, unless, unless I'm just practicing discipline, I'm saying just, just read. Right. Don't think. Just read. <laughs> right. Or think lightly. Don't 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 think too much. It says here, if your goal would be to read the entire Bible within a month, okay, so thirty days to read through your entire Bible. Okay, hold on. Thirty days, one hour a day would be thirty hours. So you two hours a day. Two hours and fifteen minutes each day. Yep. Yep. And if you think about that, think about that, y'all listening. Some of y'all have long commutes. Some of you have two hours a day of, of dead air time just in different things that you're doing, whether it's long commutes or you've got a lunch break at work where you take long showers. Yeah, you take long showers. I mean, think about that. You could listen through, especially if you did it on double speed, you could listen through the whole Bible in right. an hour and in 10 minutes a day. If you did that for 30 days straight, you'd have the whole Bible in a month. That's awesome. That's amazing. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, takes around 13 hours to read from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It feels like that. Yep, sometimes it does. <laughs> Historical books, that would be uh, about 17 hours there. The writings, the, the poetry and writings, that'd be around nine hours. 
prophets, about 15 hours. Gospels and Acts, you wanted to read straight through the Gospels and Acts, around 10 hours. Epistles and Revelation would be about seven hours. But most of your books, all that to say, are, are, are not going to take a, a, a long time to read through. And so it's, it's, uh, it's helpful to remember that as you think about reading the Bible, man, that may seem daunting to you to read the whole Bible, but it's accessible and it's, it's doable. And I think we do it a lot more than we realize we read for that amount of time, other things. So true. And there's a cool app that I found a little bit ago. Uh, it's by one of my favorite indie developers called discipleship tech. They produce the prayer mate app, which is in my opinion, the best prayer app on the iOS market. Can't speak for Android. I don't know what they have out there, but that's the best one on iOS. Uh, he, he produces an app called Redeeming Time Bible Reading. Hmm. And the cool part about it is that you put in how much time you have, and it'll tell you what books of the Bible you can read based on the time that you have. So if like, let's, let's say you put in 10 minutes, uh, you could read Habakkuk in nine minutes. You could read Jonah in eight minutes. You could read Second Thessalonians in seven minutes, and on and on it goes. Pretty cool. That is really cool. That is, yeah. In fact, I just pulled up a, a list of average reading time of all the different books of the Bible. And a lot of them are in the minutes range. Um, even some of the, the larger ones that you might not think of are like the book of Ecclesiastes might seem daunting. That's 30 minutes. Song of Solomon. There you go. 20 minutes. Go spend 20 minutes in the Song of Solomon. <laughs> might do wonders for your marriage. Yeah. Lamentations. We're about to pick up Lamentations. That's 20 minutes. So a lot of these are, and I've heard this before, about the length of a newspaper article that you would normally read. Mm. And uh, and not many people are reading the newspaper anymore. But I don't read the articles. An article paper. online or something like that. So there you go. There's just some encouragement to be in your Bible and reading your Bible. Well, speaking of encouragement to read your Bible, man, we got something special coming up at the end of the year we as do. we prepare to turn the corner for thir- uh, 2024. Yep, Thank that's you. what comes after that's 23. What, I forget what you're in. Man, we're, we're excited for the next the next roundabout in our Bible. Yeah, so get ready for that. Get ready. Stay tuned. Set your timers. Put your alarms in your calendars. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yeah, some of them tuned back in this morning because they were like, I want to know, can I lose my salvation? You're going to have to keep waiting because we need to deal with Jeremiah 51 and 52 first. All of 51 and 52. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will stir up the spirit. No, we're not going to read through the whole thing. But this is continuing, uh, again, destruction, judgment against uh, Babylon and redemption for uh, Jerusalem. And it's interesting here. You've got in in, in uh, Jeremiah prophesying the prophecy of the Medes and the Persians being the ones that would destroy Babylon. And this is another evidence of God being sovereign over these events because he's foretelling through Jeremiah something that no one at this point in time would have ever imagined or predicted. And it's just neat to see how that unfolds. And and that's his point in verses 15 and 16. He has this interlude where uh, through the prophet, he he praises his own, God does his own sovereignty. He's the one who made the earth by his power, established the word by his wisdom. And so this is just God flexing on what was the the superpower of the day in Babylon, saying Babylon may look like the big dog on the, the block, but they are going to go down. And when they go down, they're going to go down and it's going to be a, a disaster when they go down. In fact, uh, Jeremiah 51, 38 and 39, even it talks and foreshadows some of the way it was going to happen. Look at verse 39. They are inflamed while they are inflamed. I will prepare them a feast and make them drunk that they may become merry. Uh, Daniel chapter five, you've got the, the feast with Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. And while that is taking place, many, many te- te- tekel parson. Yep, or Ufarsin, depending on the, the translation there. Yeah, God bless you. While, yeah, thank you. Uh, while they are celebrating, the, the, the Medes and Persians are literally invading the city. 
it's that very night that Babylon falls. And so here you see some of that alluded to in Jeremiah uh, chapter 51, verse 39, the, the destruction, the judgment, um, the heavens and all the earth and all that is in them so, shall sing for joy, verse 48, over Babylon, for the destroyers shall come against them out of the north. There, I think you see some of the, the uh, like we talked about yesterday, looking forward to um, the, the eschatological judgment of Babylon, when the heavens are rejoicing over the downfall of, of the, uh, the, the Babylon in the, the last times as well. And so would that have brought joy to, to the Israelites? Yeah, in part, but it also in the future, there's going to be joy when, uh, when God brings the final judgment against his enemies in the future. Yeah, so Babylon has a past, present, and a future kind of understanding. There's a leg- legitimate uh, historical Babylon. There's a present Babylon, that, which makes up the, uh, those who are opposed to God and his rulership, his reign, kind of a Psalm 2 flavor. And then there's the future Babylon, the eschatological Babylon that you talked about. So as you read these things, it's important to know that even though this is a historical people, a historical events that are taking place here, this is archetypal of, of what God intends to ultimately destroy. So they represent all of evil and not just themselves. One thing I found that was interesting to me was in verse 44. He says, I will punish Bel in Babylon and take out of his mouth what he has swallowed. The nation shall no longer flow to him. The wall of Babylon has fallen. So Bel, Bel of Babylon. Interesting. Uh, of course, this is probably a reference to one of their false gods, uh, the false god that they served and they adored and worshiped. And I, I, I found it interesting that scripture doesn't say he's nothing. Scripture calls, that means scripture treats them like a person. I'm going to punish him, which tells me that the, the personality given here is very much, uh, very likely not just a, an idol with nothing behind it. Although even when scripture talks about this, there's always the clarification idols are nothing but demonic entities. And so when we talk about the nothingness of idolatry, we're not saying that there's actually nothing behind them. They are nothing in that they're not actually God. But here, Bell is likely represented by a real spiritual entity mm-hmm. posing as a good God that B- Babylon worships. So here's my point in this. I think it's important that you see that when, when you look at your neighbors who are going to the, the local temple to bow down to their idols and their, their the things that they worship, there is real spiritual power behind those things. Uh, when I saw my neighbor's uh, idol temple thing, I shivered a little bit. Not that I felt anything mystical or you know spiritual necessarily, but I knew what that was. Yeah. I know what I was looking at, and that's real. Uh, so even though we understand idol, idols aren't real in the sense that they're not real gods, they're lowercase g gods, but they are real lowercase g gods, and they are to be feared in that we should be praying for them, praying for protection rather, for the people that, they're, that are serving them, praying that they would be delivered from them, and praying ultimately that they would have no influence in our communities and in our, our towns, our cities, and all the above. So keep in mind, as we, as we look through this here, look, look for stuff like that. The idols, the, the de- demonic forces behind the idols, you got to be aware. Yep. Yeah, helpful. A couple more notes here. Verse 56, for the Lord is a God of recompense and he will surely repay. That fits in, in keeping with what we were talking about yesterday with God being a God of justice. And so we see that uh, made, uh, made plain for us there in verse 56. How about Sariah? Did you uh, make note of Sariah, Pastor Rod? He's uh, one of the fam of, of one of your favorite people in the book. No, I miss Sariah. What am I missing about Sariah? Sariah, verse 59, the word that Jeremiah the prophet commanded, uh, Sariah, the son of Neriah. Guess who else was the son of Neriah? Jeremiah. Baruch. Baruch, my man. Yeah, so Sariah was the brother of Baruch. I remember looking at that. It didn't register as anything in particular, but yeah, that's cool. So pretty cool there. My man Baruch. 
Hey, uh, chapter 52 then uh, is basically a rehashing of 2 Kings 24, 18 through 25, 30. And this is the fall of Jerusalem. Now, this may have been added after uh, the pro- Jeremiah's part came to an end, so to speak. And uh, one commentator said this was added to, to show the veracity and the validity of everything that Jeremiah had had prophesied. Still added as part of the, the, the inspired content, what God wanted there. Uh, but just like Moses didn't record his own death, it's... P- possible that, that someone else, you know, put this in as an addition there as, as part of the book. But uh, one thing to note here uh, in verse uh, 13, uh, yeah, verse 13, uh, Nebuzaradan there, he comes and destroys the temple. Okay. So the temple is destroyed. Now jump down to verse 24. Then the captain, of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, different Sariah, not Baruch's brother here, different Sariah. Okay. Take Sariah, the chief priest and Zephaniah, the second priest and the three keepers of the threshold, so forth and so on. He takes them and he executes them. So as God is finishing up with the judgment of Judah, he takes out the temple and takes out the chief priest. Uh, that's significant. I think that's God communicating something here that he is, is done with the false worship that was taking place, the fraudulent, the, the going through the motions, the hypocritical worship of the people of Judah there because the temple is gone and the chief priest is gone and the people are carried away into exile. And it's, uh, it's a bleak scene there for the people. Indeed. That's a tra- and this is a tragic ending to all. Of, I mean, this is exactly what Jeremiah prophesied about. Now, here's something we're going to have to spend, a, I guess, a, a minute or two on at least. Um, the deportations. Yeah. There are three deportations that we know of, but there seems to be a fourth that, that whether it's on the front end or the back end of this, it's hard, it's hard to know for sure. But let me, let me just throw some dates at you. Number one. Not 605. 605, you have, okay, let me, let me just give you the dates. 605, you remember this one, 597 and then 586. Uh, 586, you know, because this is the one that we're talking about right here. This is the big one. There seems to be one perhaps a few years later, 582, that maybe uh, Nebuchadnezzar came back and took some more back. It's hard to know exactly. And, and part of the problem is that when you read Second Kings, you're going to see different numbers for the deportations. And you're going to say, well, how does that make sense? This is saying one set of numbers. This is saying another I'm not entirely sure how to answer this, except that it seems like there might be a different group of people involved at the end of Jeremiah 52 here. Um, perhaps it's the leaders who are being referred to, because the numbers are really small for the deportations. Where, when are the deportations happening, and who's actually going in each of these? They're, they're slightly different um, than what you're going to read in Second Kings. So with that said, uh, I would spend two things. I would spend some more time in this. I'd open up your Bibles, your commentaries, your study Bibles, that is, and do some reading, do some homework. This is going to take a little bit of tweaking and thinking to make it clear in your mind. Secondly, I would also say that some of the dates and the figures are not meant to be scientifically precise as we read them today. There's a different way of approaching this, and that's the, that's the, probably about as most I, sh- I should say about that right now. Not to say that God has been is reporting inaccuracies. It's just that the way that they presented information is different than we ha- than we do it today, and that's no charge against them. Doesn't mean that they're wrong or that they're inaccurate. It's just they do it differently than we do. That said, I would just be aware: three deportations: 605, 597, 586, maybe one 582. Helpful. Yeah. Okay, let's deal with it. Let's go to chapter six. Okay, can you just answer the question then? Can you lose your salvation? We'll get there. Uh, <laughs> he starts off by by exhorting the people. And remember, we had just said, they, they by now, they should have been further along in their faith. And so he says something here that I think needs some clarification. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, um, does that mean we forget the gospel? Does that mean the gospel is for babies? Does that mean we leave it alone? Yes. No. <laughs> no. In fact, you've... That was a setup, man. Come you, on. You're messing you, with me now. You probably have heard me say it before. If not, you will um, over the course of, of your time with me. But I, I believe in 
re- rehearsing the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself daily. I think it's so helpful for us to return to the, the, the gospel every single day to remind ourselves of, of the grace of God, as I talked about on, on Sunday, as, as we looked at together. And so here, it's, it's not that he's saying, hey, get over the gospel and move on to things that matter more. The elementary doctrines is he's saying you, you need to grow. You need to get deeper, as we talked about yesterday. You, you need to progress. You need to mature. You need to move more into Christ's likeness and the full stature of Christ, as, as he says, or, or as Paul says in Colossians, that he wants to present every man mature in Christ. You need to grow in that. And even on Sunday, we talked about the Trinity some and the importance in, in your small group uh, discussion time, your community groups, of studying hard things and, and, and wading into the deep waters of theology. Even times we can't understand things, it's good for us to stretch ourselves in that. That's a little bit of what the the writer is is saying here. But verse four introduces the, the, probably the most controversial warning passage in the book of Hebrews. He says, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age have come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and upholding him or holding him up to contempt. Is this saying you can lose your salvation? No. Wow. No. All that. Huh? All that for one, one two-word no. answer. Yeah. No, I look, this is a, a tough passage because who is this talking about? Well, here's a, a couple reasons why I don't believe this is talking about a believer. Uh First, you may know some people in your life who do believe you can lose your salvation. Um, Here's the problem with this. A lot of the people that believe you can lose your salvation believe that you can regain your salvation, that you can pray again, that you can be be saved, that somebody can lose their salvation and then come to faith again down the road or whatever it may be. The problem that we have here, he he says very plainly, he says it's impossible to renew that person to, to repentance. So if this is saying you can lose your salvation, it's one and done. You're gone forever. There is no coming back. And so it's not like you can pray again and be saved later on down the road. It's done. You're, you're gone. The second thing is, look down at verse number nine. He says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he's contrasting what he's just been talking about with believers here and matters belonging to genuine salvation. So who is in view in verses four through six? My understanding is this is someone who is close to uh, the gospel, close to the church, exposed to the gospel, exposed to the church, exposed to things of Christianity, um, playing the game, uh, even uh, perhaps somebody who is, is, is saying that they're a follower of Jesus, but not truly saved. And, and then eventually they say, okay, you know what? I'm done playing the game. I'm finished with this. I'm going to walk away. That, that this is a, a sense of, of walking away that is so egregious that it is that turning over in Romans 1 that, that Paul talks about of the, the unbeliever and the, the final hardening of their heart. And, and it is impossible because they have been given every opportunity to come to faith in Christ and experience so much of the periphery of the goodness of the gospel and yet ultimately not bow the knee and, and spurned God's gracious advances towards them so that he finally turns them over to themselves and it's impossible for this person to come to faith in Christ. So in verse 6 then, Pastor PJ, would you say that the repentance that's being discussed here is, it, 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 it's, it, you would suggest then that's not a sincere repentance, it's a superficial external. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's helpful. I, I guess a, a couple observations that I think I think could help contribute to maybe your own personal study about this. 
Now, notice that this is couched in the same context where the preacher is saying, look, uh, don't be sluggish. Don't be, uh, don't, don't be unskilled. You grow up in your faith. Grow up in maturity. And he uses this in part as a cudgel, uh, you know, to, a, a prod to say, look, the Christians, genuine Christians, are pursuing uh, maturity. They're the ones who, uh, the, when the land drinks the rain, they produce fruit. There's fruit, yep. There's fruit in their lives. So this is couched in the section of fruit-producing Christians. And this is saying essentially to those who are who are tempted to to play it safe and to play it, you know, to play it soft and slow. Hey, you better be careful. This is not something to trifle with. And again, not to say that you necessarily can lose your salvation because he's saying, look, I, but I'm confident that you guys are going to respond to this. I know that things that belong to salvation are what belong to you guys. But just notice the context where he says this. That'd be my first observation. Secondly, I would, I would also point you to the fact that all the words that are used to describe this person are not the kind of words that you would necessarily uh, put together with a with a with a Christian. You don't see the word saved or salvation. You don't you don't see the terms being in Christ. You see words like uh, tasted, uh, words like uh, enlightened, enlightened. Which I, I saw an interesting parallel between this and Numbers fourteen. Now, Numbers 14 talks about the wilderness generation. They were rebellious. They were enlightened by the, the fire that led them by night. They tasted the manna, the goodness of God. They saw his miraculous signs in the wilderness, and yet they still rebelled against him. And so I think, I think given that the, the intended audience are Hebrews, and given that the, the Hebrew text is where this is drawn from, I think, that, that, I think there's a parallel there. And I read one commentary that suggested the same. So I feel like I'm in safe territory there, at least suggesting it to you as something to read alongside Hebrews 6 as a warning not to be rebellious like those who in the wilderness harden their hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, he'll say later, don't harden your hearts as they did in the in the wilderness. Instead, uh, let today be the day where you respond appropriately. Right. And, and even the rest of the context of the book of Hebrews helps us understand that this is not talking about somebody who's who can leave their lose their salvation. Even the very next section in chapter 6 He's, he's talking about Christ as the one who has entered behind the veil. He's the, the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, the hope that enters into the, the, he's talking about the Holy of Holies here is, is the idea where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And then in chapter seven, he's going to talk about Jesus is the one who ever lives to make intercession for us. So it's, it's like John MacArthur always says, if I could lose my salvation, I would lose my salvation. And the, the whole idea there is just as we did nothing to earn our salvation, we can do nothing to lose our salvation, church. If you are truly in Christ, uh, it's, it's that old idea. Once saved, always saved. Yes, if you are truly saved. It's if you are truly in Christ, you can have every confidence that he will deliver you into the end. He will make sure. He is the anchor for your soul behind the curtain, as chapter 6 goes on to say there. There's hope for you to, to, to know and to feel secure in Christ. So this warning passage, what should it do for us Christians? Well, this should cause us to, to really, as Paul says, examine ourselves to see whether or not we truly are in the faith because we don't want to be self-deceived. But then if, if we have that confidence, it should give us that great hope and that great certainty and that great uh, assurance to know, man, God's got me through Christ. And he's the one, uh, there's so many passages, right? I mean, think about what, what Peter says, that we are being guarded by God's power through faith, right? He's guarding us through our faith for that salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Paul says in Ephesians 1, we've been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. So many other places in Scripture to point to to say we are safe and secure in Christ. Yeah, that's so helpful. Uh, that, that security is something that I think is a birth, uh, or rather a result of someone who's been born again, 
who recognizes. I mean, when I read Hebrews six, I could, I could be terrified yep. because I mean, this could be me. I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to deceive myself and lie to myself. And I think there's probably some tender-hearted Christians out there who would look at this and say, "Man, is that me? Am I the kind of? Am I drinking the the rain and not producing a crop? How much of a crop should be produced?" And I, I don't think this is the intention. I, I, I think the goal that the author of Hebrews is trying to provoke is, look, if you're looking at you, you're going to find insufficiencies. You're going to find deficiencies, which is why he points us to the steadfast anchor of the soul. The ultimate goal of what you're reading here is faith in Christ. And if there's genuine faith in Christ, there's going to be a production of fruit because I will then be so, I'll I'll be motivated by grace through faith to live for the glory of God. And I'll do that because I'm I'm grateful because I have faith, because I have love. And when that happens, man, I'm not so worried. I'm, I'm concerned about fruit. I want there to be fruit but I'm not worried about it because I'm confident. I have a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on my behalf, having become a high priest after the, forever after the order of Melchizedek. So my hope is not in my performance. My hope is not in my fruit, my fruit production. My hope is in Christ. Mm. Well, hey, you know what? Don't lament because this podcast is over today. Oh. But uh, join us again tomorrow. And we'll lament for some other things perhaps. Oh, well. Uh, maybe enter into a little, little limitation tomorrow. Wow. And talk about Melchizedek. Sounds so fun. Come back tomorrow for another episode. See, See you then. guys. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Thank you.